We are Netflix, the podcast for people who love Netflix and want to learn how we do what we do. I paint and draw. What kind of painting? Um, landscapes, acrylics, oils, all sorts of stuff. I have a little large studio at home. Oh, Are you awesome. the Bob Ross of machine learning? <laughs> <laughs> Fessel Siddiqui holds a Bachelor of Science in Electrical Engineering from AMU in India and a Master of Science in Electrical Engineering from Stanford University, where Fessel started working on wireless application protocol gateways, first as a co-founder of his own startup, and then four years as a software engineer at Route Science Technologies, where he pioneered Route Science's network monitoring and decision-making application software. Fessel moved to be an engineering manager at Avaya and then as director of engineering at Covia, where he led platform engineering teams working on quality of experience of streaming video utilizing machine learning. Over three years ago, Fessel Zadiki joined Netflix as an engineering manager of personalization infrastructure. Thank you and welcome to We Are Netflix. Thank you. Great to be here. Julia Pitt has an Associates of Arts from De Anza College, a Bachelor of Science in Applied Mathematics from the University of California, Davis, where she also did graduate work in computer science. During college and following, Julie worked at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, where she worked on, among other things, the Bio Encyclopedia. Julia Pitt was first with Netflix about 10 years ago as a senior software engineer, transitioned to a manager of streaming server engineering, and then left Netflix for a few years to help in the recommendations infrastructure at StumbleUpon. Then on to Live Minds, Inc. as an engineering manager, helping to bring forgotten memories to life. Julie then started Order of Magnitude Labs, a startup introducing autonomous agents that learn common sense to problems. Julie Pitt, welcome back to Netflix in your five-month position as Director of Machine Learning Infrastructure. Uh, what's it like coming back? Oh, and welcome to We Are Netflix. Thank you. That was a very comprehensive introduction. <laughs> um, we have impressive people here. I want to show, like, showcase yeah. that. Yeah, um, it's amazing to be back. There's just, in the last five years since I've been gone, a whole new set of problems to solve. Um, you know, since I've been gone, Netflix has become not just a tech company that has great content, but now is developing original content, has become a studio. And we're now applying tech to these problems. And so it's really exciting to explore this new space. Yeah. Julie, you left Netflix of your own choice? Yes. Okay. And and yeah, we've had other examples of people leaving them out by their choice and actually coming back. Um, see the last episode of this show. But uh, what did you miss when you left Netflix? Like what, when you came back, you, it was exciting because, of course, we're doing all this new, you know, originals programming. We're doing a lot of new creation of content. But from a from a business perspective, what was it like here versus the places you were since you had a, a time away? I would say, I mean, it was a very, very different environment. Um, one of the environments was a company trying to establish a culture. And so one thing that I missed was a culture that had been established that still was evolving, right? At Netflix, the culture is never done, but it's it was much more mature and much more farther along. And so at these other startups that I was at, it was not so far along. And so it made me appreciate just how much focus is required at all levels of the organization to create a great, fantastic culture. Mm -hmm. One of the benefits we have here is that, you know, at prior, uh, this company kind of started out after we've talked about it in some internal podcasting, but at a certain point, we decided how important culture was. And that was at a very early stage within the company. So we've had a long runway to really develop that. Whereas it feels like a lot of companies accidentally fall into the culture that they are like. And so we've kind of shaped what we want for many, many years. Fissel, what do you feel like about the culture here? Is it important to you how we operate? Absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, I joined a little over three years ago and a hundred days after my joining, I wrote my first hundred days blog post. And uh, I talked about some of the things that actually stood out to me. I'd always admired Netflix as a company from its uh, for its, you know, technical prowess. But as I read more about it when I was uh, contemplating joining this, I saw this uh, I, I saw a lot of good things coming from what I uh, read in the culture deck or the culture mm -hmm. memo now. And then there's also a bunch of 
FUD out there about, oh, it's a cutthroat culture. And, you know, it was as, as a candidate who was prospective and evaluating whether she should join something like this, it was, uh, it was not easy to figure out what is the reality versus what's not. And that's why once I had been here for, for three months, I felt that I needed to sort of clarify that out uh, for others who were in similar situation. And I was amazed at how real and how living the culture deck um, had been. And I saw examples which were counterintuitive to what I had seen in other places where how people were really sometimes brutally honest with, with the feedback that they wanted to give in. My first route of awakening um, happened in a, in a meeting that I had organized and I had come with the quarterly plans of this is what my team should do. And basically one of the engineers looked at me and said, yeah, we don't do that here. <laughs> can you, can you get, dive in a bit more? What do you mean? Yeah, so the idea there was I was trying to sort of predict what are the some of the things that we should plan out for the next three quarters and let's try to fit this in and all that. And then that. assign those things to people, like I think? Yeah, and, and so it basically, it, it really depends. Various teams here have a lot more autonomy and especially we want to try to make sure that the managers are playing the role of uh, context providers and enablers and people who connect the dots rather than people with strong opinions who want to influence how the product is going to be. And so when you're trying to say, here are the various things that you're going, you know, we, we want to be able to do. Obviously, there's a there's a certain degree of prioritization that is necessary. We do mm-hmm. that. But uh, engineers don't like to be told, you know, how to do things. And, you know, that context or control is something that's sort of ingrained in the culture. And so you're, you're basically saying, you know, these are things we need to solve the context of why. And then the engineers like has more freedom to solve the problem the Absolutely. way they make sense to that person. Absolutely. And it's so so our role is really about identifying the opportunities, making sure that the people have the right connections, they're talking to the right people, providing the business context on why we are prioritizing one thing over the other. But then how to build out what technologies to use, what languages to use, you know, what are the long-term implications of picking a new language like Rust or Go, it's all left up on onto our, you know, well-formed adults, as yeah. we like to say, uh, our engineers are. Fessel, you've got like 12 direct reports. That seems like too many people. How do you handle that? <laughs> um, it's about right, in my opinion, okay. and it really depends upon the kind of people that you have. And if you have people who have enough autonomy that they can sort of essentially self-direct uh, from a technical perspective what they want to do, it really m- makes my job easier because I can then try to make sure what I said and how can I provide them context yeah. and how can I make sure that what they're working on is relevant. And so we, w- there are different teams. There are some teams that are small. I do, I have a, a sub-team where a manager, Prasanna, in my team manages about six people. I'd say somewhere between 12 and 15 becomes too much. Uh, we're always thinking about how to scale and figure yeah. things out. But at this point, um, I feel that because many of those people uh, are experienced and have been doing this for a while, they have large autonomy and they're essentially running projects which are two, three people projects. So there's a whole plethora of various different tools that we're building. And it's manageable. And the only way reason it's manageable is because of the kind of people we are able to get in. If we bring in a lot of people who are very junior and need a lot of mentorship and hand-holding, we won't be able to we won't be able to scale. And that, sure. that's true for, for most of Netflix. Yeah. So let me ask you both, since you both manage people, um, and that you mentioned, Fessel, earlier about uh, the cutthroat mentality that outside the Netflix people think about us. Um, how many people have you guys, you know, fired, had to let go? I had to let go of one engineer about a couple of years ago. Um, it's so never man- easy. You managed 12 people and more than that under you. In the last two years, you've let go one person? Yes. So it was a difficult thing, but that doesn't seem cutthroat to me. In the sense that, like, if you wanted to really prune, you could do... Yeah, know, every again, year, the, right, exactly. And, you know, we don't make these decisions of, you know, we say we, we make hire and fire smartly. We don't make these, take these decisions lightly. And it's never a surprise to that person. It's never a surprise to their team. If either of those are happening, then it's the manager's fault and the manager should probably be fired. <laughs> I So only when it, you know, it, you know, we try to give feedback, obviously. Um, and sometimes there are certain behaviors that just are not improving. We don't believe a lot in having these performance improvement plans and structure. You know, you can read about that in our, our demo, uh, in our memo. But uh, sometimes we just have to make the right decision. And, and, and the, the team actually, um, surprisingly or not, um, they are actually thankful and grateful for, for making sure that the quality of the people. Yeah. And it's challenging. Okay, well, it's, it's, it's good to hear the perspective from a manager. We've talked a lot with independent people and stuff about what it feels like it's, here. It's hard to it, have that conversation, but then 
you have to do it because you know, I wouldn't be doing my job and I won't be making my team as effective if I don't have the, the A team that I need. And yeah. you know, we talk about having the deep dream team and not the family. All right, thanks. Now let's go ahead and talk about what you actually do here. Let's talk about machine learning and infrastructure at Netflix. You clarified earlier that the two infrastructure arms, that you guys are doing infrastructure, not the machine learning algorithms. I don't think a lot about the infrastructure side. Everything's just in the cloud. It all just works. So can one of you tell me what it means to make infrastructure for machine learning? Yeah, sure. Um, I can take a stab at it. Actually, there's a famous paper by, uh, by some folks at Google who've talked about, you know, as the growth of machine learning has, has really expanded on how, how much emphasis um, there is on the actual core ML algorithms code, which, you know, obviously it requires a lot of science and research into to getting to that point. But then there's this whole other set of systems that have to be in the, you know, have to be designed well, they have to scale well, they have to be reliable, um, that are necessary for essentially getting to sort of those really small but very meaningful percentage gains that machine learning models and the quality of those models are after. And so it's about data quality, it's about making sure that um, the input to your mm, training data um, is, is appropriate, making sure that you have the right configuration and parameter management, making sure that you are able to do the right feature engineering, um, uh, making sure that you are able to give the researchers the ability to use any and of the many upcoming ML toolkits, and then about model selection, picking out the right hyperparameters. Lots of these things have to be in place. And in many ways, you know, you have all the requirements of good well-engineered software engineering systems. And on top of that, machine learning adds, you know, a sense of sort of how you need to get your data be, you know, uh, sanitized. Um, and, and so add, it adds its own level of essentially new engineering requirements on top. Um, so a lot of what you do in ML is about picking the right algorithms and the right network architectures for your deep learning models. But a lot of it that happens behind the scenes is just good software engineering. That's basically what our two teams uh, essentially focus on, trying to build up that platform so that the researchers can innovate um, on top of that platform. So let me put it this way. Um, if Netflix just said, hey, we made the content and we have a bunch of MP4 and audio files, um, here you go, users, uh, would we have a product? Well, guess what? There's a whole lot of infrastructure to get that content to the user that, that needs to be built. And a similar problem exists for data science. Data scientists create models, and there's a whole lot of work that goes into that. And when you're trying to get that into a product, that's just the beginning. Julie, let's, um, I think all the four of us in the room right now, all engineers and understand this stuff pretty well, but I want to kind of open up some of this conversation to just anybody that happens to be listening to this podcast in multiple fields. Tell me what a model actually is in regards to machine learning. So the simplest way to think of a model is really just a function that gets learned that takes some input, some X, and produces an output Y. And you hope that the output is going to predict something of value to you. So for example, one of the problems that we have is when we are about to decide whether to make new content or purchase new content, how much is that content going to be viewed by users globally? And if we have a good idea of that, we can understand how much is this content worth? So the model would essentially take in a whole bunch of a variety of different inputs that might signal what the demand could be and produce this predictive signal that's useful for folks making decisions. So in other words, it's just a function approximator. That's a very a good way to think about it. Yeah. So in, in general, if the, the scope there and that problem that you're stating is we have a whole bunch of people that are paying us money every month, and they all have multiple profiles. Those are whole families of people. And then all of them like watching certain things. And we kind of know a bit about what they like watching because they watch stuff with us. And we have a whole side that we'll talk in a second about, about giving them the right content. But when we're talking with a creative person that's written a script or has a few actors involved in a project, and it's about uh, shoe sales in the U.S. or something, some documentary or something like that, there's this question of like how – I, you know, we, we can find interest in that. People can find interest around the company. But the, ex the ideas of what we might like as people that choose what to hire content, you know, to, to pay for content stuff, isn't a, a good representation of our audience, what they would like. So we really want to try to marry those two. We want to pay, we want to buy stuff that our audience is going to enjoy. And we want to make sure that we produce that. And we want to spend money in accordance with making sure we please as much of our users as possible. Is that kind of the scope you're talking about? Yeah, I mean, the bottom line is that we're building a global content business. We're building 
content for audiences across the world. And yes, we have expertise in-house and we're trying to keep that as a diverse um, set of expertise. But at the same time, that's not the complete picture. And we want to inform those choices by the data that we use. It seems like that's a very hard problem to solve in the sense that how do you find inputs to new creative that are valid inputs? That's an active area of research, as a matter of fact, (laughs) because if you don't have traditional things like box office numbers, because it's something brand new, there's a whole host of things that we can try. And this is really only one problem. If you can actually take um, this models that might predict demand for content and extend those to how do we distribute the content on our Open Connect CDN? Is that in your uh, bailiwack as well? The there's Open Connect. So Open Connect is is on a different team, okay. um, but there's data scientists actively working on this problem that are going to use our infrastructure to develop their models to solve this problem. And the th- the question is, if you have a brand new piece of content that's never been released, where in the world and what what caches are you going to deploy that to? That's another hard problem that has a different quality from buying content. At yeah. this point, you have to you have to know exactly which assets, what bit rates, what languages for audio and subtitles are you going to put and where are you going to put them in the limited space that you have. So just to kind of catch up our users, Open Connect is a kind of these boxes that we've spread throughout the world that contain all of our content. They are but not as, all of our content. Not all of it. And the reason why they cannot have it all is because we have lots of different bit rates in lots of different encodings, which means that it'd be just petabytes of data. Therefore, since we only have a finite amount of space, we have to put whatever we think is the most popular in each region. Keep in mind, we don't, I don't know if it's really petabytes. Do you know that? No. Well, I can just, just do some, numbers. some napkin it's a lot. math. But it's a lot. It, it's so, a lot. So one I don't know box. which one's bigger, XO or PETA, but one of the two yeah. is bigger. <laughs> XO is definitely bigger. Um, okay. We're probably not in XO then. So one of, one of those boxes that might be um, in south of France would have content that hopefully the people in that area are planning on watching. If, if somebody in that area starts watching something that's available to them but not on that box, it's a slower playback for them because we have to download, we have to move that file or have them stream it from somewhere else. So we want a predictive model that says, when this new piece of content comes out, which of these boxes does it go on to? And that's a data science machine learning problem that we're that's to right. solve. Yeah. That's yeah. right. And that's something you could solve with kind of traditional methods of, hey, based on how much this content has been viewed in the past, what do we predict? Those, mo- those methods could be improved. Okay. So, so to do the open connect kind of filling of data, do we also use the same prediction models of how we promote within our service? Like if we go, hey, this area is going to be hot for this upcoming new show – hey, let's make sure we promote in the same way in the same region. Well, it's interesting. Or is it two different? It's, it's interesting that you bring that up because those two problems are related yeah. because what you market will affect what the demand is. Uh, the question is, can we connect that kind of on the back end, that the, that the algorithms that are recommending content, marketing content, inform the distribution algorithms? And that's an active area of research. Yeah, and, and add to that, I would add to that that essentially um, it's the same set of inputs that are going into that. We're not necessarily sharing the exact models because even if you look at it closely, the problems are actually slightly different and the actual predictive function that the distribution requirements versus the promotion requirements need are are slightly different but a lot of the common inputs on what people have watched and what geographies what kind of content is popular in a particular um, area they are very similar Um, and so to that extent we share a lot of upfront analysis or ETL outputs but then the actual problem statement and therefore the models themselves are um, are different but as Julie mentioned we're always looking for exploration and how we can sort of better work together in terms of the various efforts that could be well aligned together. And this is certainly one area where where demand and essentially supply need to be aligned. So you just mentioned two examples, um, which I didn't really think of us using machine learning, the the content potential investment in content and also the distribution of that. Because of course, when people think about algorithms and machine learning at Netflix, they think about personalization. Let's talk a bit about the scale problems of making sure that the right movie goes to the right user. What kind of infrastructure stuff do you solve? Yeah. So machine learning at Netflix is, you know, can be traced back to almost a decade, uh, starting with the Netflix prize. And um, really, that was a benchmark in leveraging external um, academic and industry research 
developers to come together for a problem and we put out basically a large data set of our movie ratings and asked uh, people to sort of better our algorithms. And, and offered, a, uh, offered a big prize. We offered them a million dollars, which was later on claimed by uh, an ensemble of teams. And But it really sort of set up uh, an example of how to open up some some data um, and, and get collaborative effort coming out of it. And we actually used some of the algorithms in the product that were suggested by some of those teams. It's been a long time since then. The technology has evolved. The, there's been two secular trends, one in just the compute infrastructure has gotten far better with Moore's Law, uh, the the power of the machines and the GPUs, uh, especially around 2010, 2011, have gotten substantially more powerful. And essentially the power with that compute infrastructure, the power of complex deep learned models have, have actually started to become very useful in, in business applications. And that's what we have been focusing on for the last two, three years. So the infrastructure that we build in the personalization space is, has to scale at the scale of our member profiles. And, you know, we have 125 million members and growing. And, and for each of those accounts, we have, you know, up to five different profiles. And so now we have this problem of hundreds of thousands of content pieces and hundreds of millions of members, and we need to match them to Together. And those data sets get bigger all the time. And because, those data sets are yeah. only getting bigger, which is a great problem to have, <laughs> but ne- nonetheless something that we, we need to scale to. So one of the unique requirements in, in our world, which which isn't as much of a, a thing that Julie's team has to worry about, is because our member-facing systems are essentially all Java microservices, we have to make sure that we uh, the infrastructure we build can sort of scale and fit well in the JVM-based um, environment. And so you know we utilize Apache Spark, Log, for computing because it allows us to do essentially large-scale distributed computing and all uh, in an environment that sort of fits in well with the JVM world. We, and, and is most of this running yeah. in Amazon uh, instances? Yeah, almost everything is running in AWS. Our, our entire control plane is on AWS. The Open Connect part that was alluded to earlier is, is obviously separate. That's essentially our CDN and that's running in various stacks of machines in various ISPs. But what we call that, we, we call that the data plane and everything else that we all do here is the control plane and our control plan is in AWS. And Netflix has invested a lot of time building really good tooling on AWS. So And open source some of that tooling too. To a make lot sure. of it. Yeah. A lot of it actually has been open sourced and some of it has come out from, from uh, our personalization teams as well. And so, Are any of the tools you work on open source? Uh, yeah, one of the teams, uh, one of the projects that my team had worked on earlier on is called EV Cache. Uh, yeah, sure. And EV Cache is used extensively within the various um, microservices teams to store data. It's basically a, a high throughput, low latency cache, uh, builds on top of MK and we provide essentially global replication in AWS and all the fun stuff there. I didn't um, know EVCache was a Netflix product. I, I had no it's Yeah, we've been using it extensively. And, and I think the personalization use cases were the first big users of it, but it's been used extensively now. And, and the way we use it is because if you, you can imagine when somebody hits play on their Netflix app, we really need to be able to you know get the content to them very quickly. And so in the request path, we can't be doing this big math computations that machine learning requires. Yeah. So the way we use EV Cache is we essentially do a lot of pre-computations. We score, as an example, let's say um, I have, uh, we have a model for PVR. PVR stands for Personalized Video Ranker. And essentially, we rank the entire Netflix catalog for every active member profile every so often. Right. So we always know what is title number one for you, Lyle, and title number you know, one Seven or whatever. Four. Exactly. Of the shows that we haven't watched, most likely? Um, it's the entire catalog that we okay. rank, and then obviously the ones that are at the top are the most relevant ones. So, um, so, when, so when I get a row on Netflix of, of movies, sure. the, very, the very first row of the very first box art is the one that's the highest of that rank. Kind um, of? Kind of. Ballpark. So, and the reason for ballpark is that there are, there are different models. The default model that actually does the, the column ranking, uh, that is PVR personalized video ranker. But some of these models are much more volatile. They need to be updated more often. So for instance, continue watching row often is at the top row, and that can't be ranked just by by your preference and our understanding. Right. It's really literally what you've watched, and you and, want to continue watching that. And there's another one called Trending Now, another one called uh, right. Popular on Netflix. These yes. are things that have different algorithms behind them. They all have different algorithms behind them, and they have different sensitivity to time. For instance, Trending Now, as you can imagine, needs to be updated much more frequently, whereas many others can be you know scaled and rank, you know, once a day or, or once every few so hours. So you were just saying that when a person pushes play, you don't want to do any of these calculations. Why would you do any calculations of that stuff when you push play? Yeah, so uh, so 
technically, it's when they go on the app. Okay, when they and, launch and the app. And we have to actually show them the homepage. That's when we need to make sure that we're presenting the right recommendations to you. But even, so they, they can push play So soon. that they can yes, push play, can, exactly. Can. But even that has to happen in the order of milliseconds. And so you still can do a lot of inferencing and prediction that needs to happen using machine learning models. So what we do is we basically run these pre-computes every few hours, and then we store the results, the ranks, the PVR ranks, in EVCache. And so when the request comes in... Per user, per okay, profile. So does that mean that that EV cache is different per region? Because there's no reason for me to, like right now I'm in California, there's no yes. reason for my ratings to be in India somewhere, right? It's globally replicated. It is globally replicated across the various regions. Just in case I'm traveling and I log in. Absolutely. No? And it yeah. happens. It happens. Yeah. I mean, you, there are multiple regions, multiple AWS regions, even within U.S., and sometimes there's a case that you actually were traveling. You you were on your mobile phone. You were sure. recommended something. I travel sometimes, yeah. <laughs> well, what, what I was saying was that you were actually traveling through a part that you were handed off between different regions. Mm-hmm. And so we need to make sure that the caches in all the regions are popular. And obviously, there's some smartness to storing the right amount of data because, you know, if you are generally watching in, partic- in, in the United States, we don't have to have all the, um, all of the recommendations in, um, in other regions. But we have globally replicated EV cache, and you should be able to access our data from a close yeah. region. And you got to remember, we also run a bunch of Kong exercises. We take down regions. We tr- route people throughout Excellent the world. Point. And so if it's not globally replicated, you get a default low limo pretty quickly. Yeah. That's actually – we should probably talk about that in the future episode of, yeah. uh, of the show. Very but basically, that idea is let's go ahead and if we have different fallbacks, let's test that fallback experience. Let's destroy a whole region, turn it off, and see if the service is working. And we do that regularly just to make sure that everything's working. I mean, that's such a great example of Netflix's you know, fail-fast culture. We literally take down an entire AWS region just to prove that we'll be able to do fine. But it actually happens, and it's not initiated. And, and, and all and of our system has to be, have to be supporting of that. And what we're talking about regions, we're talking about AWS's um, Amazon uh, web service. So they have a West Coast and an East Coast and a European region and maybe another two or so. Yeah. And those are servicing. If you're in the, on the West Coast of the United States, for example, you're probably in that place in the U.S. Uh, region. But we might turn that off one day and just have everything serve the East side. And the reason for that is if there's a problem, we want to be prepared for it. So that's the yep. – back on track to machine learning though. Yes. So you're saying that we have, to pre, we have to pre-compute that stuff and we have to build infrastructure like the EV cache so that we can achieve the high-performance – uh, throughput that we need for the user with that model that we've trained. That's right. And yeah. EVCache is actually a fairly generic infrastructure that is used by a whole lot of other applications, not just ML infrastructures. But some of the ML-specific infrastructure that we have to do is uh, a lot around how do you sort of manage the orchestration of these pipelines for these models that have to be trained. So you have to, as I mentioned earlier on, there's a lot of emphasis on data. And so, you know, you need to make sure that your data is prepared well, your features are extracted out of that data, and then you feed that to essentially a trainer. And then trainer, which is essentially the learning function, comes up with a function, and then you have to do all sorts of hyperparameters optimization. So there's a workflow orchestration systems that we've built. Mason is a tool. Dagoba is another tool that my team has uh, has worked on. And then there are just various libraries that help you with that core feature engineering and training pieces. So there's two libraries that uh, I, I want to call out. Uh, one is called Algo Commons, which is essentially a set of building blocks for various uh, features and feature encoders and data maps that sort of let you do the core as a researcher, do the core definition of what is a model, right? A model essentially is a specification of how data comes in, what to learn, what things to look at, and then what to predict. And so Algo Commons provides that base layer. And, and is Algo Commons a Java library? It's a Java library. Mm-hmm. And then there is a Scala library sitting on top. It's a higher level ML API called Boson. And that essentially uses all the building blocks that Algo Commons has and essentially allows you to do this high-level pipeline I talked about from data preparation, feature engineering, training, and so forth. So in Scala? So that's in Scala. And why and, is that in Scala? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, one of the reasons why it's in Scala is because we wanted to leverage the power of distributed computing that Spark brings. Apache Spark is this really popular big data compute platform, and we use that heavily. And the reason for using Scala is because Scala fits well in the JVM world. And remember how I said that we need to be fitting well with the member-facing side, which is all Java apps. One of the important aspects of machine learning is that there's this, you train the models and then you score the models, Mm -hmm. right? So 
the model training happens in an offline context. The model scoring, where you're actually coming up with the prediction, that's happening in an essentially online context. And the concept there is that if I all of a sudden start watching a whole bunch of murder mysteries, we want yeah. the system to go, oh, here's some more of those. Absolutely. And so it has to learn quickly my behavior. That's but right. the training mechanism of like how are titles um, performance, you look at the data for like a week or something and you, you match titles together and stuff. You, you can have a little bit more time with it. It depends. That's yeah. true. You know, we can go back several weeks. In certain cases, we have to train in a much shorter window depending upon the kind of use case. But the point I was trying to make is that oftentimes when you compute metrics after you've trained your models, you have some idea of how good the model quality is. But then when you deploy it and you actually get real traffic on it, um, you may get differences in those metrics. Mm-hmm. And the goal of um, ML researchers is to align these two as closely as possible. And one of the ways we do that is by literally running the same code in Algo Commons in an online context as we can in an offline context. So therefore, and it has to run the Java v- JVM. That, exactly. Uh-huh. So it has to be compliant with JVM world. And therefore, those feature encoders that Algo Commons provides, they run for training in Scala through Boson. Yeah. And then they run in an online context. And and so that's additional. So do you have the same uh, problems, Julie? Do you have to do the JVM context? Or are you a Python? So we don't have that constraint. And we're solving problems that are largely consumed by internal business users. So analysts, for example, being an end user. And given the the size and the breadth of the data science teams that we support, we want to enable them to be fairly autonomous from developing the model, from po- prototyping the model, to serving that model to those end user applications. And so the best path to doing that is rather than asking data scientists, please learn Java and the JVM, is to build tools that work in environments that they're most familiar with. And that includes both Python as well as the R ecosystem. There's actually a pretty solid base both in Python and R. For machine learning problems. For for machine learning problems. And one of the core components that we've built is called Metaflow. And it's a very unopinionated uh, framework that has a client library and a service that allows a data scientist to very simply specify a step-by-step flow, a, a DAG or a directed acyclic graph of computation. Of course. And yeah, right. <laughs> no idea what you're talking about. Go on. <laughs> um, and, and that basically allows them to say, hey, step one, I'm going to get my training data. Step two, I'm going to do a hyperparameter exploration, which basically means there's different parameters of, of the model that you might want to try, and you want to try those out in parallel. For example, if you're training a deep neural network, one hyperparameter would be, well, how deep is that network? How many layers mm-hmm. are there? Or how wide is the net, is each layer? And so doing that in serial, one by one, is slow. Doing it in parallel can be very fast. So we want to it enable... It sounds like people are doing a lot of research here. <laughs> so we want to enable data scientists to do this kind of work very quickly, very efficiently, parallelize it without kind of having to have the understanding of, well, how do I parallelize or how do I distribute this problem? So Metaflow allows them to do that and then bring it back together, select the best model. And then another use case, of course, would be what we call bulk scoring. Scoring is really just giving new data that the model hasn't seen and then asking it to make a prediction. And you sometimes want to do that in these large uh, bulk settings. So it seems to me the problem scope that you're dealing with um, in has a, a... slower feedback loop than like the play data of a user like when when the when the models on the client give me a row of content and the and i click the first or second or third box art in one of the rows the model goes oh that one worked right like we slowly are able to train the system by trying to modify the model and you see how well i play in the loops in some of these loops though they have to be a lot slower on on whether you know you've got good a good predictive model is that true well, in some cases, if you're buying content and there's sort of a year runway for that, you might not learn whether the prediction was good for a year. Yeah. In terms of, you know, how often are these models updated? In a lot of cases, they're retrained 
on a daily basis or okay. rescored on a daily basis. So yes, it's not as uh, real time as the product facing use cases, but we definitely have a lot of use cases where it does need to be pretty fresh. So your your role basically is to make sure that, that infrastructure for the data scientist is running smoothly. There's easy tools for try, for trying these things to power to empower them to um, test things quicker. To test things, but also to deliver them into some end end facing application. And so one of the problems is serving that model. Hey, I've developed this model, but now it needs to get into some kind of application that's going to pull together multiple data sources. Can we talk about a concrete example of something that you recently produced an application out of your... Yeah. So one one fun example is um, there's one component I should describe first, which is our model hosting service. And so once you've trained a model with Metaflow, it produces an artifact, which is basically a serialized model. And the question is, well, that what what do you do with that? It doesn't do you any good. That, that's the function you were talking about earlier. It's now this big now, mathematical function. You can put stuff in and get stuff out. Exactly. Okay. And so, well, what do you do with that? Well, it's not really uh, any good unless you can kind of turn that into a service that some other application can call. And so we have a model hosting service. It's kind of like a meta service because it's a service that hosts other services. <laughs> sure. So the data scientist can basically specify a fairly straightforward Python class that would define their own custom REST interface that basically loads the model and provides a REST interface that then some end business application can call. It's a microservice within the hosting service. Okay. Um, And so one fun example is uh, one of our early adopters, he's really uh, enthusiastic about using Metaflow in the hosting service, and he's been doing research um, uh, in the NLP space. So, for example, pulling out named entities from uh, screenplays and trying to understand how these entities relate to one another. And the realization was, well, NLP is a pretty general capability that's well, needed. Wait, is, what that is NLP? Multi-layered oh. perceptron? Oh, that's a great question. Um, natural language processing oh. is NLP. Yeah, Thank so you. it's all kinds of machine learning type applications to understand human language, written text. So this engineer has written a model to start consuming screenplays. So he's not an engineer. He's a data scientist. Oh, cool. So he's come up with this model. And what he did was he defined a REST interface in the hosting service. And now he's actually telling other data scientists about it. So the, the, the promise is... We, the machine learning infrastructure team, didn't actually build a REST interface. He built it, and now he's actually making it available to other teams. So what does it do? It essentially allows you to, let's say, one one use case would be you, you send it a blob of text, so some kind of paragraph, and it'll tell you, you know, what entities, oh, here's the, you know, this sentence mentions Washington, D.C., so it says, oh, there's a city in this, and the, here's the text, Washington, D.C., or... Kind of, kind of a, an example test case that we, we talk about in general, um, you know, when, when a new library comes online for machine learning, that's the kind of stuff that hits the headlines, right? You can give it a paragraph and it classifies the paragraph as much as possible. Are we using that system right now at Netflix to help us parse content? That's all in the early stages. So this is the fun cool. part about research, right, is that, that get, making it available is the first step. So there's a lot of exciting work planned for the next couple quarters on this. So are you guys building a microservice of machine Learning services? Is that the right term there? It's really enabling data scientists to build their own microservice with a very simple interface without necessarily requiring them to, you know, okay, create a new repo with their project with all the configuration that's needed to stand up a new service and all that kind of boilerplate. Really, it's just enabling them to worry about just this this very thin interface. Th- their expertise, their domain expertise yeah. in a small interface. And one, one cool thing is that we are highly leveraging uh, a newly released open source project by Netflix, which is called Titus. And Titus is, you could kind of think of it as an alternative to Kubernetes, where... That doesn't help me at all. <laughs> um, so Containers. It's, Containers. containers, yes. Okay. okay. Virtual so instances containers. Basically, virtual instances containers, and it will orchestrate the containers for you. So if you need 
200 of these containers all doing the same task, it will orchestrate that for you. So when I, when I work, when I, if I was a data scientist and I want to come up with a, a natural language processing system that would classify all these different known entities that we deal with, I build my model out and then I say, okay, I want this and I need it this kind of scale and this kind of resource. And then in the background, your tool, Titus, is taking it and spinning up instances necessary to run that code. And as a data scientist, it all just kind of works for me. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And that's your that's, that's your role. So, and, and, and your I should clarify that that the cool thing is that machine learning infrastructure did not develop Titus. We're actually leveraging this this project that's being developed within a different team called Platform Engineering. Yeah, and Titus, of course, is the thing that actually spins up all the instances to run. When when you talk when your TV talks to Netflix, it's actually talking to a, a virtual instance that's managed that's inside Titus. In some in, in some, some cases, case. in some cases, because Titus is more of a container-based view versus the traditional EC2-based um, infrastructure that the majority of our microservices currently run on. Oh, okay. So, yes. so okay. So, so, so our edge instances right now don't run in Titus. Most oh. of them don't. Oh, why is that? I know we're going outside our our only. Because. It's it, some of them are actually using it, and actually, there's a layer of UI code that probably you guys are familiar with more that called Node Quark, which is essentially uh, executing on Titus containers, but containers. Uh, um, is, is, is more of an up-and-coming technology, and we're trying to make sure that you can have the same level of reliability um, and that, that regular EC2 virtualized instances have. Yeah. But they do give us more flexibility in terms of, uh, you know, a better utilization of resources, mm-hmm. and that's why we're sort of starting to go towards that. I think, if you, you know, in, in two years' time, the, the landscape might be quite different. Yeah, um, I'm actually, I work primarily on the iOS uh, ah, application space. I see. And so we're the ones moving to the Node Quark instances sooner than everywhere else. So, I some of the some of the if you search on your iPhone, for example, that's yes. in Titus. Yeah, yeah. and so there's it definitely goes through Titus, and then eventually it bounces back to the rest of the stuff. Sure. But and I, I would like to add one more thing to uh, to what she was saying. That I think much of the stuff that we've been building, we've been sort of being able to leverage technologies that have been built. Uh, not just within our own teams, yeah. but in a bunch of other platform engineering organizations. And uh, another example of uh, collaboration between our two teams is that the cool Metaflow tool that she's talking about that also uses a tool that my team had built. I, I mentioned the Mason Workflow Orchestration yeah. Engine. So Metaflow uses Mason for orchestrating and then Titus for actual execution. And so this is, we're basically leveraging the power of the expertise and things that we've built in other parts of Netflix so that we can focus on the areas that nobody else is looking at. Right. So we've been streaming video for years and making people happy with the content that we either um, buy from other distributors and all of that, or different other makers and everything. And now we're doing a lot of originals. I'm assuming both of you are desperately hiring and at, at different levels, and you can find the most current jobs at jobs at .netflix.com. But Julie, I'm assuming your space is growing a little faster because our content uh, exploration space is just massive right now. We're doing so much more. Can you talk a bit about some of the challenges you've got coming up? in the side of the, the non-member facing side? So um, one big challenge, if I, if I were to lay out the whole landscape of yeah. the thing and I think about where I started as a software engineer, interestingly enough, this will, this will all tie back together. Uh, where I started was, it was nearly 20 years ago. And at that time, it was actually really difficult to be collaborative as a software engineer and to be really productive. Because if you look back, we didn't have distributed version control. We didn't have Git. We didn't have agile methodologies. We didn't have continuous integration, continuous deployment. We didn't have the cloud. There were a lot of things we didn't have. Now you're describing a lot of stuff that makes um, my job a lot better. <laughs> and true. as an individual software engineer, I mean, it was so much harder to work together. And I look at the data science space as a whole. And I realized that what where data science is today is where software engineering was 20 years ago. And so I look like the, the big, big picture is we actually have as software engineer practitioners a big opportunity to bring those best practices to data science. And I think the larger challenge is there's a lot of amazing research going on and a lot of people who've kind of cut their teeth in academia that have great ideas to bring to the table. And how do we marry that with a product, with with delivering kind of the end product? And so some of the challenges, you know, it's not just about, about content. It's also about, you know, delivering the content. It's about studio production. There's all kinds of interesting problems, challenges there. It's even about um, how do we improve the quality of the streaming experience itself. So one example, a a model that's actually running on the client devices as an A-B test right now is to replace an existing rule-based method for deciding what bit rate to stream. 
with a machine learning based method. So what you're talking about is earlier, Michael mentioned that we have lot on these boxes, we have lots of encoding versions of the file. Basically, right. we have a really high res and a lower res and a different res and a smaller res. So that if your network connection is really bad, instead of having to wait for a long time with buffering, you get a video playback that's not as rich and, and, and beautiful as the high quality, but still good enough to experience it. Right. So that, that bit rate delivery we traditionally have had these rules, like somebody coded, well, if their network connection looks like this, let's put them, start up with this, and then after five minutes, let's try to up the speed. And that all those rules are kind of codified by a developer, a group of developers. And yeah. now you're saying, instead of doing that, since we have data on how well those perform in different environments and different devices, we could actually train models with that. Exactly. And interestingly enough, my previous stint at Netflix, that algorithm, which is called adaptive streaming, was actually being developed. And I can tell you that it was painstakingly A-B tested over many years to get to where it is today. And the question is, can we make meaningful improvements using reinforcement learning to do the same thing but better. Michael, didn't you work on an A-B test last year that did with video bitrate for... Yeah, we've done a lot of different testing throughout our app and then I've done a lot personally on that. And like one big thing we have to sacrifice with uh, the main kind of display on uh, Netflix is that we want to both have high quality and fast start time. And you really can't have both of those all the time. And so we have to sacrifice startup time intentionally to have a higher quality. And that's a very hard decision to make. And it's or the hard... other way around in certain cases. Yes, exactly. And so when we do promotional content, we want that higher quality because if we give somebody a trailer, something new that's about to come out that we really think is going to be good for them, and it's just completely blotchy and, you know, 256, something really, really yeah. low, people aren't going to watch that. It just doesn't look good. It doesn't – nothing's appealing about it. And so we have to play a very careful game on what is the quality versus – the startup time. Because if they don't ever play it, then it was obviously, I'd say, equally as bad as a really low seems, quality play. seems like there's an opportunity there for um, personalization in that as well, in the sense oh, that yeah. some people might care about one value over the other, yes. even subtly. Yeah, bingo. So and to tie it back to, to my original point, there's so many different problems to solve. And so our, our problem is really making each individual data scientists more productive. But the other major one is actually allowing and enabling data scientists to collaborate. Because the question is, what are the big problems that we're not solving? Because today, collaboration is very hard. Yeah, that seems like a serious... And you guys are both tackling that, I'm assuming. At, at different levels, yes, absolutely. And yeah. I think we're actually leveraging some shared infrastructure that other teams are doing around uh, notebooks and how you, you know notebooks is this idea of code and output of the code together with visualization. And so it makes it easier for people to share the results of, hey, here's some new cool uh, algorithm I tried, and here are the metrics. What do you think about that? And then somebody can easily uh, you know, poke holes in it and give more ideas. So we're both using notebooks. Um, there's also other ways um, and other tools that we're using. But yep, it's pretty exciting time. There's so much. I have so much more material I could talk about, just culture and lessons. Yeah, and like, No, I can tell you about, about feedback and how I learned how feedback works at Netflix, which is I was meeting with Patty McCord, who used to be the chief talent officer. The uh, Patty McCord. Netflix, the the P Patty McCord. And I was talking to her about a situation that I had with another individual. And I said, hey, you know, I'm kind of concerned about this situation. I laid, laid it all out for her. And then she said... Well, so what did they say when you told them that? Yeah. And then that was it. It was like, oh, I get it now. I get feedback. Yeah. Was it a hard thing to say to that person? Initially, yes. Now, one advantage of being a leader is that you have these kinds of conversations all day long. You're, you're not better. allowing things to get to a point where it becomes difficult and it becomes awkward. You're having this kind of continuous feedback all yeah. the time and you just get better and better at having these conversations and yeah, yeah the first couple times it's like oh my god what do i say and how do i say it right and it's really daunting and another example which uh, there are there might be other companies that do that but um it's really ingrained in is in the culture here is you have to take responsibility of the decision that you're making and you have to be able to speak to to the person who's impacted directly. And this applies even for when we are hiring people and when we realize some candidate is not good enough and we have to end early. As manager, as the hiring manager, we basically go and give them direct feedback in the moment on how the interview went and tell them that, sorry, we won't be able to hire you for this and this reasons, but we have to do it in a way that, that you know, uh, is, you know, that is respectful of the time and effort they've put into it and appreciative of the interest that they've taken into it and, and, and give them actual usable feedback so they can get better in, in their next companies. And I've actually gotten feedback from some people who I 
I passed on, gave them feedback, and later on they said, actually, your feedback helped me interview mm-hmm. at other companies, and oh, here's nice. where I'm, yeah. I am. So that sort of you know, closes that loop. And It's um, the worst feeling to spend a day as an engineer uh, being hired somewhere, and then sucks, at the end they're like, no, we're, not, we're passing. Can you yeah. give me feedback? Nope. And the reason, of course, is the oh, whole legal that. aspect of it, right? Yes. But I'm glad that we do candid feedback for we people that we We give candid feedback directly, and I mean, it, it depends on who you're asking, but most companies that I've interviewed with, and when I, and when I have not been successful at getting hired at some place, it's always, uh, yeah, we'll get back to you and it's this vague thing and then you just don't hear about it i'd much rather okay here it is yes i'll feel a little bit bad but i'll be over it and if i can get some you know usable lessons for future that'll be awesome and so that's the approach we take if they handle that really badly at the end you're like well good i I don't want to be in a place that that's how you treat people having active live feedback you kind of can go okay at the end of this interview i can see where i failed and i can see why they did this whereas if you go and hire at other places you just get the no, that's like, an why not? Point. Yeah. And like, that's no, we can't talk about. It. You're like, well, how do I know things are actually fair? Whereas here, you kind of get the exact well, it, breakdown, it, and it goes both ways too. So I've, I've on occasion had a follow up phone conversation with the candidate that I've passed on, and it t- ends up being a two way conversation. So I'm kind of like, hey, here's what I'm looking for, and here's what what the interview feedback was. And by the way, can you tell me about ways that I can improve your experience? Because I've learned. You know, plenty from other candidates who've said, hey, you can improve this process. Yeah. So are you reinforcement learning? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. We're all living um, this and, one and, giant matrix. I mean, the other thing is like, we, I mean, I don't look at interviews as this transaction. I look at it as a relationship. There's this kind of yes. ongoing interaction and you never know what's going to happen two or three years down the line. Somebody that didn't work out for this one role at this time might be fantastic for this other role at this other time. We actually have a person here right now. He did not make it two interviews in a row. And on the third one, he did make it. Now, uh, the team that hired him is extremely happy about his work there. So, Is this, is this he named Michael? <laughs> I don't want to talk about my personal experiences. So I think you hit, touched upon, Julie, touched upon something that was really uh, fundamental to the way a manager should be working. And I think this goes for any company. If you go into a situation where at some point you go from um, they're doing a great job to, okay, now we have to do review and there's a problem we have to address. And it's like a step that happens where now they're in a review process of possibly having to leave. That's failing in management, right? The entire time you should be looking at the very small steps. You don't want to change your modes with an employee um, because you're doing a situation where you're treating them differently in a different state. You, you want to always treat them the same way with respect, communication, all that. Right. And just to go back to Faisal's earlier comment about, you know, from the outside, it can look very cutthroat, you know, fear, culture of fear kind of thing. You know, if somebody makes bad decisions, the first question I ask is, is, or is not like, oh, well, what did they do wrong? The first question I ask is, hey, what context was missing that, that, didn't allow that person to make good decisions. And so there's not like, oh, you made a mistake and you're out. It's actually a whole process where we need to examine, like, what is what is actually going on here and how can we improve the decision-making process as a whole in addition to how can that person improve themselves? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that, that, that's a great point. I think uh, that ties into this culture of how failure is celebrated. And, you know, we all make mistakes. Um, that's understandable. And the kind of mistakes that we don't want people to make are judgment mistakes, right? Because that basically speaks to who you are and how you will behave. But, you know, pushing code that takes down some portion of the service, well, guess what? That's the price of innovation and moving fast. And we need to be able to celebrate it. Now, what we do need to do is to learn from those mistakes. And the managers need to basically set up an environment that people feel comfortable taking those risks and knowing that, hey, if a mistake is made, we will learn from it, try to get better at it, but there won't be blame attribution and there won't be, you know, you know, uh, negative outcomes coming out of that. Obviously, we all have to get better and so that we reduce the rate at which we make mistakes, but there is just a fundamental, pro, you know, error rate, so to speak, that you have to be okay with when you have to move uh, fast. And that applies not just in the way you develop your software, but also how you interact. And from a cultural standpoint, it's rather important to have this environment of psychological safety that's so much being written about that, where it's okay for people to, you know, say something that is occasionally not in the best uh, uh, team dynamics, but then they should be open to receiving feedback. And as Julie was mentioning earlier, there's this constant 
this constant um, culture of giving feedbacks and receiving feedbacks. And every, you know, every quarter or every month, I would ask in my one-on-ones with my team members, what, you know, what else can I be doing differently to make your, your job easier and better? Um, and, you know, we have to have that, that mentality of serving the, the people who are basically building the stuff. You know, we're really getting the right people who are experts at doing it. And so it's our job to make sure that they can be as effective as possible. And that requires constantly listening in, giving feedback, receiving feedback, and fixing our behaviors. That's fundamental to how stuff gets done at Netflix. And and I would also add that feedback is not something that the manager or the leader does. It's actually something that everybody does. And we all have not only the freedom to give feedback, but we also have the responsibility to give feedback when we have it. One one thing that actually happened when I was here the the first time was um, I was a manager and then I was in a series of meetings with my manager and uh, kind of realized, hey, I've, I've got this handled. And I just gave my manager direct feedback and said, hey, you, you don't need to be in these meetings. And he said, oh, great. That's, that's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. And he stopped going to the meetings. So you know, and, feedback and goes worked. both ways. Yeah, and it worked. It went fine. Well, Julie Pitt and Fessel Siddiqui, thank you so much for joining us on We Are Netflix podcast. And thank you for being here, making things better for our data scientists and our, our platform and teams. Thank you so much. It's been great talking to you both of you. Yeah, this has been a delight. 